Amen. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, this is, our, again, a very, very amazing portion of Scripture. Because as we read this today, just see what we got done with the reading, it begs the question, what does this have to do with me? I mean, let's face it, folks. As we're reading this about the tabernacle, we're all wondering to, and we're probably asking ourselves, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with what Jesus did in the shed blood at the cross with this whole building of this tabernacle? We feel disconnected, don't we? There's a disconnection when we start talking about the tabernacle. It's almost as if I'm wasting my time even reading this, right? I got a good old friend of mine this week that I met, teacher, that I, I really like what he said. The Bible was not written to us. The Bible was not written to you, but it is for you. Meaning the Bible was written to in a culture that's completely foreign to us. It wasn't written to us directly, but it is for us. This part of Shah, folks, is really amazing. If you're going to notice how the Heavenly Father works and the works of the Messiah included in that, we're going to see how methodically he works. Now, we started with salvation, the exodus of Egypt. Okay, and what happened? They applied the blood of the lamb, right? Salvation was given by what? By the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. That was the doctrine of salvation, essentially, folks. What I'm trying to teach you and understand this through a Jewish perspective is that the doctrine of salvation has always been about the blood. This is understood in Judaism. It's nothing new, believe it or not. You know, the Jews are not trying to earn salvation contrary to popular belief, folks. That's not the purpose why they do what they do. You know, you got to remember, folks, that when Yeshua met with the Samaritan woman, what did he say to the Samaritan woman? Salvation is from the Jews. I'm not trying to emphasize a lineage here, by the way, folks. Don't get me confused. It's not about the blood lineage. It's about the faith of Israel. That's what, we, that's what we're, gearing, uh, we're trying to uh, gear towards here. It's understanding that you were grafted into a faith that already existed. That makes a big difference. You, you did not start, Yeshua didn't come to start a new faith. We have to understand this. And that's why we go through the parasha, so we can understand the words of our Messiah in the proper context. He didn't come to start a new religion. Gentiles were grafted into an existing religion already, an existing faith. I hate the word religion because it's more of an existing faith. So we have to humble ourselves, as scripture says, and learn. That's the idea. There's a lot of connection in here with the tabernacle that connects to Yeshua in our walk, our daily walk. This is very important and fundamental in the faith of Israel. And guess what? Romans chapter 11 says that you have been grafted in. We have to get over this, folks, because I believe with all my heart and all my soul that we are in the latter days. I believe it. I, you know, and I can prove it by certain things that are happening right now. And I'm not talking about earthquakes and sin and none of this. I'm talking about really fulfilled prophecy that is taking place right now, guys. That CNN and Fox News is not sharing with you. See, the problem today is that we're waiting for the Antichrist, are we waiting for Fox News to reveal the seven-year peace treaty started, guys? 
How many of you actually knew that they actually did a rehearsal of a temple service this past this year? It wasn't televised in Fox News. I mean, I didn't see that in national news. But yet it took place. Interesting how the enemy works. Because we're all waiting for, okay, I'm looking for the news to see when Israel starts the seven year. And they have to say it. Like they have to say, today, today, we start the seven year peace treaty. Click. All right. It's time, guys. It's not going to happen that way. Most of the stuff is happening right under our noses, and we don't even see it, folks, because we're not looking. And we're not looking. You know why we're not looking? Because we've been taught that it's not for you. That's the big one. See, the enemy is great. He's, a, he, he's not a liar, by the way. The enemy's not a liar. He's a deceitful person. He's a deceitful entity. What is the difference between a lie and a, and a deceit? And a de deceitfulness, there's a certain amount of truth mixed with lies. A lie is just a flat-out lie. But the enemy doesn't come with a lie because if he comes with a lie, he knows that you're smart enough to detect a lie, but he knows that you're not smart enough to detect a deceitfulness. Something that's being deceitful. See, right now up to this point, folks, for 1,800 years now, 1,800 years, folks, we have been taught that none of these things in the Bible really relate to you, nor are they important for you, per se. And because they're not important for us, we don't look. We're not looking for real prophecy. How many believe, I will say with this, folks, how many of you believe that Ezekiel was a true prophet? A valid one. How many of you believe that Isaiah was a true prophet? Okay, if these are valid prophets, I'm not talking about a prophet for hire. I'm talking about valid prophets. They already prophesied what's going to happen before the return of the Messiah. Why are we not listening to what the words that they speak? Why are we more moved by why the prophets on TV say today and discount what the real prophets and his word already have prophesied some thousand years ago. Why are we not listening? That begs the question, folks. I'm saying this because on that day of judgment, folks, you can't tell the Messiah, well, I was not informed. What about all his witnesses that he has in his word? Do you know that many people die for you to have a Bible in your hands today? So was that in vanity? What was the purpose of their death? So that you can have the witness before you so that you go with no excuse. The real prophets, and I'm not discounting that there's prophets out there today. I'm just saying that if I have to gamble, folks, I'm going to gamble with the ones that God already declared they're my prophets. I know they're, they're good. Well, guess what? Those prophets told us what would happen in the latter days and what to look for, more importantly, the signs that you need to look for in order for the return of the Messiah. Guess what? I will submit to you that actually most of all those have come to pass just in the last two years. See, we, we're not looking for sin to get worse. Sin cannot possibly get any worse, folks. Sin is sin. It's always been nasty. It's always been ugly. It doesn't get worse. It's still the same. 
But what we do need to look for is the prophecies that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel spoke about concerning the latter days that concern to Israel. I'm going to share something with you right now real quick before we get into this, folks. Everything that the Lord does is through the eyes of Israel. If you're not looking to Israel for prophecy, I'm afraid you're looking in the wrong. Which, by the way, that's what the enemy wants. He doesn't want you to have your eyes in Israel. He wants you to have your eyes in other things. Look, look, look. It's getting worse. Look, now there's three tornadoes that hit Georgia. I guess we're coming to doomsday. Guess what, guys? Tornadoes have been around for all eternity. Earthquakes have been around forever. Oh, my God, look. The world is getting worse, Richard. Definitely, Jesus is returning back. The worst of the world is not getting worse, folks. The only difference is that we have internet today, and now you get to see everything that everybody does on tweet when they didn't have that back then. The only difference is that the revelation of sin actually is being revealed to us now through technology. It, it's not that the world's gotten worse. Honestly, it's still the same. It's still ugly. And it will always be that way until the return of Messiah. So now, this connects us now to understanding prophecy, folks. Understanding the purpose for the temple, amen, and the tabernacle. Last week, folks, we ended with Exodus 24, 7 and 8. And what was the connection there? It says, then he took the book of the covenant. Who took the book of the covenant? Moses. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Everything that the Lord has said, we're going to do. Have you ever said that to yourself? You know, God, I want to be obedient to you. And I want to do whatever it is that you've asked me to do. You know, whether you realize what you're speaking is it's important. But the fact that in your heart, you probably even have spoken this. I want to do the will. Who doesn't want to do the will of the creator of heaven and earth? An atheist, maybe. But those who fear the Lord, we want to do the will of the Lord, right? I mean, that's, it, there's no better place to be than to be under his wing and under his will. So that's the same thing. Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now, it begs the question up to this point, what is the covenant that he made with them? This is going to, come to connect a lot what we talked about in the New Testament. This is the book of the covenant, and, read, and he took the book of the covenant and read it in, in the hearing of the people, and the people obeyed. They said that we will do, we will obey. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. Something happened that day. There was a sealing of the covenant. The blood touched the people. The blood touched the books of the covenant. And what does that indicate? A bind together. Now, this is important to understand because if we don't understand this, we're not going to understand the new covenant. But this is very important. Now, it begs the question, what happened here? Did the words that he said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and be obedient? Uh, it begs the question, folks. It begs the question. And I'm going to say it today. That God gave them something that they could not fulfill. Why I'm asking this, folks, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm not trying to be facetious, but here's the thing. When you're going to go minister to people out there, believe it or not, there's some people that are actually pretty smart out there. There's people that are smart. And if you're going to try to bring the gospel to people and, and, and tell them about this God that you serve, 
they're going to recall everything, and I mean everything, that you said. They're going to recall it back to you. And my, they may not act like they're listening. They're listening. And every word that you say, they're going to use it against you in a court of law. When we say that our Lord, our God, would never give us more than we can handle. True? Is that true or is that false? Because I know the God that I serve, he's not going to set me up for failure. Because that will make him unrighteous. Here, I'm going to give you something I know you're going to totally fail. Maybe the other gods of the world will do that, but our God doesn't do that. He gives us what we want. As a matter of fact, there's a total portion for that. If the, if the wife or the son, the wife of a husband or the son of a father makes a covenant with somebody, who can know that covenant? If it's not a covenant that the wife or the husband sees that is suitable for that person. The father can nullify the covenant and the husband can nullify the covenant according to Torah. So guess what? On that day, they enter into a covenant. You think that God would have intervened and said, no. No, because Torah says that he could. Isn't he our heavenly father? Okay. He could have intervened that day and said, no. I nullify that covenant because I don't see that that's fit for my people. It's too much for them. But he didn't. Torah says that if the father or the husband keeps silent, the covenant that the person makes, it's bound. It's sealed. It's good. What I'm trying to say, folks, is that God had an opportunity to intervene on this day. If he saw that that covenant was too much for them, that there was no way they were able to fulfill it. I want to stop here for a minute, and now we're going to enter into this week's parasha, because last week's parasha ended up with them making that declaration and entering into that covenant with Hashem. But now what happened prior to that? Well, they just got saved by the blood. I, I'm going to keep reemphasizing this, folks, because you see, we have a misconception of salvation today. This people were already saved. They weren't trying to earn salvation. Which came first, the law or the blood? The blood came first. That's the order. So it's been that way. But after the blood, what happened? He took him to Mount Sinai to give him what? The word. This is where we're at right now. I redeem you, I freed you, now you are going to be mine. And I'm going to show you what my character is because I want you to walk in my character. I am a holy God. I cannot be mixed or in a mix with the ways of the world. You are used to worshiping the way the Egyptians worship. You are used to worshiping the way the Canaanites worship. You are used to all these ways of worship. But I'm here to tell you that I'm set apart and you cannot come before my presence with, that, with those types of worship. Because if you do, you're going to die. Simply put. Now that that understanding is clear, because I want us to, before we enter into this, the building of the tabernacle, this has to be understood. God did not come down to Egypt and told them, here, I'm going to give you the law, figure it out, and then maybe I'll save you. If you get it just perfect enough, I might just save you. He didn't do that, did he? He redeemed a people who were immersed in idolatry. Talk about mercy and grace. But did he want them to stay there? See, this is where the roads part. 
This is why he gave his law, folks. By the way, that term law, what does it mean? Teaching and instructions. It's amazing what the English translation, what it does. The disservice that sometimes it does. Because when we think of law, what do we think? Law sounds so legalistic, doesn't it? It's a term that we really don't like. But the reality is Torah in Hebrew does, really has very little to do with law. It has to do with teaching and instructions. Let me ask you something. Do you teach your children? When they were growing up, did you have a set of teaching and instructions for them? Yes or no? Okay, did that make you a legalist? I mean, let's put it in perspective, folks. As if we have to see things in perspective. I mean, let's just face it. Even for your household, if I come to stay as a guest in your house, do you have uh, instructions for me? I cannot just go into your house and come into your bedroom as I please and open all your drawers if I want and go through your closet. Can I do that? No. Does that make you a legalist? No. See? We really are totally misunderstood the ways of God. The law was given to people who were already free. That's number one. So when they ask us today, why are you guys working Torah? Because we're free. He was telling them now how to stay free. Makes sense. I freed you. Now I'm going to give you a set of rules and teachings that's going to keep you free so that you don't go back to the way you came from. Amazing, isn't it? Now that we are at this point, now he's saying, I want to dwell with you. By the way, the parameters of the tabernacle that we're going to see here today, and I'm not going to touch, uh, touch too much on this today, corresponds back to the Garden of Eden and creation. Now, we don't know. We have nowhere near time for that today. But we're going to be talking more about that as we go through the parasha. And we might even do a teaching on that here soon. Connection of creation, the garden, even in the tabernacle. What is the connection? It's a big connection. So let's dive into it, folks. This week's parasha picks up with Exodus 25, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. Let's start with that. And Hebrew says, David el b'nei Israel v'yichuli, it says. V'yichuli te'umah. The word in there for this Torah portion, the title for this Torah portion, is this word right here. Te'umah. And what is Terumah in English? Let's see this. It means a contribution, a gift, contribution to be set apart for the priest also. But listen to this. The best choice, separation. In other words, folks, we cannot call it a Terumah if it's our leftovers. Now, this is not a prosperity message, folks, because this has nothing to do with me. This is about the building of the body. I want you to get this clear. This is very important. It's part of the problem that we have it in the body. We're giving God the scraps. We're so totally against that. Because we don't even see evidence of that in Scripture. And we're going to see some evidence of this. So let's look at this. Teruma really means a contribution, but the contribution that the Father wants from you, from your teruma, He wants you to give Him the best. And in doing that, guess what? The parent root for teruma, for this word, the parent root is actually ru, ruma. What is ruma? was lifted up, was elevated. In other words, we find that in the word terumah, when we give the Lord our best, the best choice, he essentially elevates us, folks. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to get a jet. I'm not here to tell you that the more you give, the more you're going to get in return. This is not the stock market, folks. Okay? 
but you will be spiritually elevated. And with that, that elevation that he's going to give you, there's no amount of money that can pay for it. I will tell you right now, that is the best. You can have all the silver and gold, and if you're not spiritually lifted up, folks, it's in vanity. Why do you think there's so many wealthy people who are completely, totally miserable? Money doesn't solve the problems, folks. By the way, he doesn't need your money. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. So let's see in here. So now that we understand the title of this parsha, that is Teruma, it has to do with giving the Lord the best, the choices of the best. Let's continue. So it says, Me'et kol ish asher yidvenu libo. Tichut et terumati. So it says in here, Me'et kol ish asher. And every man who's motivated libo, heart. Now let's look at this word in here. Yidvenu in Hebrew. By the way, this is exactly, it doesn't get any better than this translation, by the way, folks. You can't go past, this is, this is about as, as sound as it can get. You can say, well, let's look at another translation. This is the translation. This is the root right here, Hebrew, okay? Everything else is a translation. This is not a translation. This is the way it was given. They compare these scrolls right here, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you know that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was about a thousand-year difference between the Masoretic texts that's what we're reading, Masoretic text. What is the difference? Masoretic text has vowels. You see these vowels right here? Okay, you're not going to find that in the Torah scroll. When we get the building, I'm going to open up the Torah scroll every Shabbat so you guys can look and see. This doesn't exist. That was the, the, the Hebrew prior to the Masoretic text. Now, what was the dates in between these two uh, scrolls? A thousand year difference. When they found in the Qumran cave those scrolls of Isaiah, among many others, they compare it to the Masoretic text. Do you know that there was a 99.9% .9 accuracy in the preservation of these scrolls? It's amazing. A thousand years. Yet, the perfection and the preservation of this work. And really, the 99.9% .9 accuracy, that 0.1% that was actually inaccurate, is the vowel. And how you pronounce some of these things, not necessarily in the letters. It's amazing. This is very, very reliable. It's my point that I'm trying to uh, get with you. So it says in here, Yidvenu Livo, this means heart. But let's look at this word Yidvenu, which is talking about free will. He's saying, get every man who will freely, willingness, they have freely offer. From where? Livo. What is Livo? From the Hebrew word La, means the heart. A free willing from the heart. I want you to collect this. Matter of fact, the sages will say that that is from him. It's actually him. You are taking from him freely to give back to him, essentially. Look, in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, very popular dictionary, it's more conducive towards scripture. It says, a free will means the power of directing your own actions without restraint by necessity or faith. The power, folks, of directing your own action. In other words, you're not motivated, you're not giving because you're getting something back. You're not being persuaded to give. I'm not saying, you know what, give, and this is an opportunity that you may get $1,000 back. That's not free will offering. That's not being motivated. It's not really being given. Look, now let's go back to what the sages of Israel have to say. Because again, folks, First century Judaism, which is the culture in which your Messiah, your deliverer came from, 
was grounded in this, folks. I'm going to submit to you today something that you may not like, folks. But why was Yeshua, what was Yeshua doing in the synagogues on Sabbath? Who's that teaching? Teaching. Can I ask you a question? You see, this is why this is so important in culture. What was Yeshua doing in the synagogue teaching? What was he doing sitting in the seat teaching? Let me ask you a question. Can anybody just come up to our church and take over the mic? Some of you go to church. Can anybody just walk in and say, excuse me, pastor, let me have the mic today. I'm teaching. So what was Yeshua? Let me, I'm going to revisit this question. What was Yeshua doing in the synagogue teaching? Because it was part of his, believe it or not, contrary to popular belief, and even scholars today who don't even believe in Jesus would admit that Yeshua would have been more closely associated with the Pharisee team. You want to know why? There was two groups, primary groups in the first century. Well, three. You have the Essenes, you have the Pharisees, and you have the Sadducees. And there were some others, but those were the primary ones. A Sadducee would not dare and could not enter into the synagogue of a Pharisee to teach. And a Pharisee could not enter into the synagogue of a Sadducee and teach. Why? Two doctrinal differences. So Jesus was allowed, is what I'm saying, to teach for a reason. Who was conducting the synagogue service at that time? The Pharisees. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. Scripture says it. The Sadducees didn't. So the fact that, here's another thing, folks. I'm going to throw a little wrench out here and here. Is who do you argue the most with? Family. Let's face it. You argue with family left right. You love them to death, but boy, do you argue. What was Yeshua doing with the Pharisees most of the time? Arguing. That's why, as, as, uh, as uh, uh, one of the, uh, the scholars in here that I was reading, uh, seeing yesterday, he was saying that Yeshua was more associated with Hillel's teaching. Hillel was a prominent rabbi at that time who actually taught Rabbi Paul, Apostle Paul. Hillel was very influential at that time. And, you, and they compared, and again, this is awesome. This really is awesome, folks, because these are Jewish people who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, when they read the, the, when they read, actually read the New Testament, they're reading the teachings of Yeshua, they're like, Whoa! It's Hillel. It's literally an image of Hillel's teaching. Now, for some of you, I'm losing you because you don't know the teachings of Hillel. But everything pretty much that Yeshua taught was grounded. And I'm not saying that Hillel was greater than him by no means. I'm just saying that the thought pattern, the understanding came from there. So why was he again allowing the synagogues? Because he was looked upon as one of them to allow them to come in. By the way, 90% of the time, Yeshua actually agreed with the Pharisees, contrary to popular belief. He didn't have a problem with the teaching. You know what he had a problem with? The hypocrisy. That's like me telling you, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but I do everything contrary to what he says. That, in turn, is hypocrisy. That's what he had an issue. He had an issue with their hearts. He said, in the outside, he even said, it, in the outside, you look good, but in the inside, you what? Full of dead man's bones. He didn't say that the outside was bad. He didn't say everything the way you interpret it is wrong. He didn't say that. He said, you look good on the outside. 
Problem is that the inside is not matching the out. So let's give it a break a little bit with this whole Pharisee thing in Jesus. Understanding that this is the culture that your Messiah grew, we need to understand this understanding. We have to come, if we want to understand his words and we want to walk and fulfill it today, we have to understand where he was coming from. What was going through his mind, amen? So, Hazam Sofer says this about Asher Yidbenu Livo, that is, from every man that motivates him. Look what they say. This is amazing. It says in here, Hazam Sofer asks, since mine is the silver and mine is the gold, the word of Hashem. That's in Haggai, the book of Haggai 2.8. Haggai says that the Lord says everything is mine. Everything is mine. And Hashem is the earth and its fullness, Psalms 24.1. What is really being given for me then? Think about this. When donations are given to the tabernacle, since all belongs to Hashem already. This is what they propose in there. This the Hassan Sofer is, again, a interp Jewish interpretation of the Bible. They're saying that God essentially is saying, I'm asking of you this, but really what am I asking? It's like me asking something that belongs to me. You know what I mean? If I own something, why am I going to ask a donation for something that I already own? That makes no sense. So what, you know, and again, we have to think about this, right? These are things that we don't think about. Look what it says. He answers... That in fact, all one can give it is as Yivenu live. That is his motivation, his desire to give. Similarly, when describing the half shekel that was to be given annually, Rashi quotes the Midrash that says that Hashem showed Moses a coin of fire and instructed him like th that, like this, they should give. The fire, the enthusiasm, the love of Hashem that motivates them, that is the gift. It's not the item that you're giving. He's not interested in what you're actually giving. He wants your heart. This is very foundational to understand because, folks, in, Jew in, Jew in Jewish thought, we don't own nothing in this world. Everything is his. We are entrusted with something that belongs to him. Now, that it changes our whole perspective because if nothing belongs to me, but it's entrusted to me, but it's not mine, I shouldn't be holding it with a kung fu grip. Right? No, it's mine. I'm not letting it go. That has to go away. And we're going to see how Yeshua's teaching actually edifies what the Hassam Sofer says. Look, Deuteronomy 6.5 says, We always recite this prayer every Shabbat. This is the Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? Might. You know that that word for might? That Hebrew word is me'ot, which means increase, abundance, resources. Look at the disservice that the English does with all your might. Well, with all your might, it's like, mm, I love God, giving him all my might. But the Hebrew word has nothing to do with strength. The Hebrew word is, if you love him with everything, then guess what? Your pocket is included on that. All your resources. That's the real translation. You walk out of here with something today, at least, right? Hopefully, right? Something. Let's look at this, folks. Humash Rashi says this. And with all your resources, even if the love of God causes you to lose all your money, 
Have you ever been confronted with that situation? Many of us probably have. Many of us probably haven't experienced that yet. Where, okay, I'm going to have to give up everything for the sake of the Lord. This is what they say. There are people who will risk. Now, I love what they say to him. You've got to really love the sages of Israel. I mean, they really, their wisdom is amazing. Look what they say. There are people who will risk their lives. And I think we all can come in agreement with this statement. There are people who will risk their lives to save their money. Isn't that true? Yeah, in more ways than others. There's people who will do an enormous efforts and will put their lives and their children's life and put a yoke upon their family for the sake of saving a penny. True. Now, I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with saving. I'm just saying in the context of what we're speaking in here, folks, we're talking about when it comes down to the wire, will you choose the Lord over your resources? Now, folks, this is something that's a life teaching because it's not something that you're going to walk out of here saying, oh, yeah, cool, I'm going to give everything to the Lord. No, this is in layers, folks. You're going to have to go through some serious trials, and you're going to fail every single one of them more than likely, but he's going to build you up. You know, by the way, Torah was given to people who were already falling and broken. You think God knew that they were not going to be able, that they were going to fall short in some of these areas? Yeah, he knew. But what happens when you're training? You fail. Right? You fail, you get up, you do it again. You fail, you get up and you do it again. And you finally perfect it. That's what he wants from each and one of us. To perfect his word. Not to get it right immediately, but rather to aim for it. Aim for his word. So look. The, uh, there are people who will risk their lives to save their money. Even those who put wealth above life must place the love of God above all. Think about that. Just like we save our money and boy, we make sure that I mean, we got our money in lockdown. That's the number one thing that we secure to make sure that we don't lose. That, that's what he's saying. That desire, that fervency that we have, we have to have it towards the Lord as well. Look, Matthew chapter 6, 22. Yeshua said this. The eye is the lamp of the body. Now we're going to understand this par- this uh, parable in light of what we're learning today with Torah and Terumah. Look what it says. The eye is the lamp of the body, it says. Do you know that that's a Jewish idiom? What is the eye of the lamp? What does that have to do? What, is the, what does that mean? See, this is why we have to go back, folks. Because this is a Jewish rabbi who was given these parables. Okay? He was not a Christian pastor. He was a Jewish rabbi explaining through, by the way, the rabbis. I'm going to let you know. First century rabbis, if you study the Midrash, every single one of them taught in parables. That was common back then. It wasn't something like, oh, let the parable, Jesus did the parable. He was a rabbi. That's the way they taught. That's just the indication. The eye is the lamp of the body. That indicates a stingy person. If you're a person that doesn't like to give, that's what it says. Look, so if your eye is healthy, it's not talking about your eye. It's talking about if you are generous, you see the difference. Look, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Meaning you're going to share light because you are giving. And guess what? You're going to look different because most people don't. Most people, again, put a lockdown on giving. He's saying in here that when you are not, when you don't have that, this goes back to the parashat You have to give freely. You have to give with a heart. That's, the, that's how we share the light, by the way. That is one way of sharing light. Especially in such a time and season that we live in our country where the economy is just plunging down. 
everybody is getting very, very antsy. And we don't want to give. And we're, again, we're like this. Who's your creator? I would, can I share this with you? God's economy is not the world's economy. So if you're investing in this economy, I got news for you today. You're going to be mighty disappointed. You're going to lose it all. Eventually you will. But when you invest in the kingdom of Hashem, when you invest in the kingdom of the Lord, folks, that is forever. And that's guaranteed to produce more than any 401 investment that you can put your money on. Invest in his kingdom. But if your eye is bad, meaning if you're a stingy person, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now you're going to look at this. No one, look what is, look, 24 connects with 23. 23 is talking about being stingy in Jewish thought. Now 24 says, no one can serve two masters. That's why he said that now. For either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. That's why it says at the end, you cannot serve God in money. Because why? If your eye is evil, meaning you're stingy, that means that that's the master that you serve. And that's going to have authority over every, 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 every decision that you make in your life is going to be based on that. It's not going to be based on faith. By the way, that's contrary to faith then. Now you're not living a life of faith. How can you go and tell people, the Lord provides but yet, you live just like they do. And you reason your money the way they do. And you handle your money the way they do. You know what they're going to look at you? Exactly what I used to look at when I was young. You're a hypocrite. Show them something genuine, folks. Show them the real, what real faith looks like. Let them see it in you. Let, the, let it ooze out of you completely. So that they may desire what you have, folks. Amazing thing, folks. You know, in the time of Elijah, there was a... Scripture is full of famines, by the way, to teach us a lesson. There was a widow who was about to die. We all know the story, right? And Elijah appears and said, okay, go ahead and give me something first, the first portion. Now, I remind you, she was about to die. She said, I'm going to go ahead and have this last meal. Me and my son are just going to die. And what happened? We all know the story. I'm not going to get into it because of her faith. By giving, which would have been contrary to logic at that time, it would have been contrary to logic in any time. If there's a famine, you don't give. If there's a famine, you save. God's ways are not the ways of the world, folks. Don't get too caught up with the ways of the world is what I'm saying. Let's not get caught up with it. Otherwise, you'll be serving a different master. And this master right here is going to leave you down. Mark 12, 41, connecting with what we've been studying about, uh, about again, Teruma, contribution, giving freely. And sitting opposite of the treasury, he saw that the people put copper into the treasury. Why were they putting copper into the treasury? What was the treasury at? Temple. This connects to the temple service. This is what we started today to study, temple service. And many rich ones put in much, it says. And a poor widow came and threw in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And calling near his top ones, he said to them, Truly I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those putting into the treasury. Why? For they all put out of their excess, but she out of her poverty. But in all that she had, her entire livelihood was put into there. What was there? The temple. That's what we're going to connect today. Service. Why did this widow did what she did? Was she crazy? Why would she give? 
all her livelihood for temple service when she could have probably used that money for food or other things probably that she was in need. Faith folks. Ramban Nachmani says this, Now that God had told Israel face to face the Ten Commandments and, and further commanded them through Moses, some of the precepts which are like in general principles to the individual commandments of the Torah, in the same way that our rabbis were accustomed to deal with strangers who come to the converted of the Jewish faith, and now that the Israelites accepted upon themselves to do all that he would command them through Moses, and he made a covenant with them concerning all this, from now on, they are his people, and he is their God. There's only one aspect in Scripture that God always says, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. He always says that, preceding what? When the people literally follow obedience to his word. Think about it. If he is God, this is, this, you got to understand this, though. This is why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? If I'm Lord, then you're going to do what I say. This was, again, this is, again, you got to go back in history. we got to remove our minds from 21st century America, folks. That's the problem. We're trying to look at the Bible through our society today. It doesn't work that way. A master back then meant that you were now subjugated to that master, and you will serve him, and you will obey him. This is why he purchased us with what? With his blood. Now we do what? We serve him. Look. He made them in the beginning. Now, therefore, if you will indeed hearken unto my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own treasure. And he said further, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First Peter talks about that too. Now, they are now holy in that they are worthy that there be amongst them a sanctuary. Do you know that the sanctuary was so important in the, in the history of Israel that whenever there was a sanctuary, it indicated that God was actually pleased with them? And there's more to that, folks. I mean, there's just so much of that. The, the in-depth of this is endless. Whenever Israel had a temple, it's because God was pleased with it. Whenever Israel walked against the covenant of Hashem, what happened? The temple went down. There's something in here that's very important that we need to learn. Look, they are now worthy that there be amongst them a sanctuary through which he makes his divine glory dwell among them. Let me ask you something, folks. In the Garden of Eden, was there a temple there? Really, technically, there wasn't. But really, there was, though. Because, you see, Adam and Eve were... Adam and Eve had that kind of communion with the Lord. Connected to Revelation, it says that in the end, there will be no temple. Because the Lord himself will be the temple among his people. So the temple, but there's a problem though. It's a big problem. Adam's sin. So how we, who are in a corruptible body, can come into the Shekinah glory of the Almighty God without being consumed in fire? This is where the temple comes into play. Look, Ramban says this. Ramban alludes to the connection between the books of Genesis and Exodus. This is beautiful. Listen to this. Genesis is the book of creation. We know that. The obvious reason for this title is that Genesis describes the first week of the creation of heaven and earth, climax with the Sabbath. Do you understand that the Sabbath has a connection? This is the reason why we keep Sabbath, folks. 
We're rehearsing. God does everything in sevens. In Jewish thought, and in the calendar, Jewish calendar, we are now in the sixth day of creation. Do you know that? The 6,000 year. And we're fixing here soon, they say, to enter into the seventh. So, you know, those millions of years, totally baloney. We're fixing totally baloney, millions of years. We are entering into the seventh soon. We're not in the seventh, but we're fixing to enter into the seventh. Do you know that when you celebrate the Sabbath and you keep the Sabbath according to what the Bible says, you know what you're essentially doing? You are rehearsing. You are letting the world know. Because remember, the Sabbath says that it's a sign of the covenant. Not the covenant, but a sign. What is a sign? What is the purpose of a sign? So that people can identify, identify and see. You are letting everybody in the world know, by the way, you're being marked. You're letting everybody know that you serve the God of creation. But not only that, the Sabbath also connects to the temple. And we're going to see that in a minute here. So look. So it says in here, uh, the first week of creation in heaven and earth climax with the Sabbath, which serves as our eternal testimony that God is the creator. Simply put, did Jesus celebrate the Sabbath? Yeah. On the clock, every Sabbath, he was in the synagogue teaching. We cannot argue that. We cannot argue that at all. It's written in the Word. It's written by the Josephus. It's written in history. It, it is, no matter how much you try to plug it in, <laughs> it's going to come out. He, he celebrated because he understood this. He said that I have come to do my Father's will, and that's it. He didn't say I come to do my own will. Name me in the Bible when he said that. And I'll give you everything that I own right now. Together with a token, I might get you into a subway, though. <laughs> no, but seriously, he never said, I come to do my own will. He said, I come to do the will of the Father. And he was showing us something there. So let's continue here. But Ramban does not stop there. Genesis is the book of creation because it tells the story of the patriarchs. For the events of their lives lay the foundation of the Jewish people's future. Thus, Genesis is the saga of the creation of God's chosen people and how they evolved from a lone couple to a large family and then into the nation that will be formed in the crucible of the Egyptian exile. Now, I love what he says in here and I highlight it for a reason. Creation, it says. Creation is not merely the physical existence. When we think of creation, we just think physical existence. But he's saying it is the molding, I love this, of human potential into the nation that will carry out the purpose of the creation of heaven and earth. That is deep. Now you may have to read that three times. But it's amazing. Creation, we are part of creation and part of creation is not fully done yet, by the way. Because God is in the business of what? Restoration. What's coming into Ramban's mind is that he knows that the climax of the Sabbath is yet a time to come. That means that right now, as we speak today, here in Sholo, Arizona, at 12.12, in the, the setting of the clock, we are now, as we gather here together, we are actually coming part of the uh, physical existence, meaning we are now molding, we are now being a part of the purpose of creation. Because the purpose of creation is to restore everything back to the Garden of Eden. So, History, as we know it, 
has not concluded yet. We're still part of this history that God is molding. You really got to meditate on this a lot, but it's amazing when you really when you when you get it, because you see now that our Creator is using us, His bidding to do His bidding. So it says in here, for without that human component, a flesh and blood family that will become the divine chariot where God's presence could rest on earth, there will be no reason for the existence of the universe. They say that the purpose for our existence to begin with, the only reason why we even exist is because God chose Israel. And God, by the way, don't feel left out because you're part of that. That's what's so amazing. God created everything so that we can be restored and that we can, he can have a selected group of people. And I say selected because not everybody would choose him, right? A selected group of people that will love him unconditionally. Free willingly. Kind of like what we talked about, Teruma. But how, how, can, how can that happen? How can God allow people without manipulating them, right? Without programming them just to love him, because that would be manipulation. How, how? And he's, how is he going to do this? 7,000 years worth of history that we're still partaking of right now. This is amazing, folks. It's really, really powerful. Because it's showing that the creator still is in the process of that creation of the six days of creation. We're still in that mode of creating. How do we create when we bring people into the gospel? When we bring people to Messiah? When they are transformed, folks, we are essentially, well, it says, in the, it says in the Tanakh that Abraham made souls. This is a common theme in Judaism. You make souls. How do you make souls? By bringing people to the gospel. Do you know that the gospel was already preached to Abraham? But that's for another day. So let's continue on in here. So it says in here, the book of Exodus now, now that we understand creation, and the purpose of us being in here is to line up our will with his will. It's kind of like, hey, you were born, and now the creator is showing you, listen, here it is, guys. This is what I'm working on here. Here's the blueprints. This is what I'm trying to do. Will you join me in this adventure? Instead of your own adventure, you just drop your adventure and join my adventure? Because, you see, I am working towards, this is the goal that I'm heading. I'm going that direction. And you see, I'm going to give you a picture and a shadow of what that looks like. And it's amazing. Will you join me on that? That's the Jewish thought behind this. Now, the book of Exodus, it says, Ramban continues, is the book of redemption. What is redemption? Commonly known as salvation. Do you know that there's a whole book for salvation? That we don't have to come up with our own theology or reinvent the wheel of salvation because there's a whole entire book in the Bible that describes what salvation is. Why are we reinventing the wheel, guys? God is saying, I gave you an entire, not a, not a verse, not a chapter. I gave you an entire book so that you can understand salvation from my eyes, folks. The book of Exodus, Ramban continues, the book of redemption, the history of Israel's redemption from exile and slavery to become God's nation. Subject only to his will. Do you know that that's what salvation means? Salvation means now that you are in God's nation. And what does it mean to be in God's nation? 
It means now that I am subject only to the will of God. That's it. Now, that's beautiful, folks. There is no other will that I want to be subject to except for the will, the will of God. Look, so Ramban says this. When did the exile end then? Because they were in exile. When did it end? When the people left Egypt? Says no. When the sea split for them? No. When they stood at Mount Sinai and received the Torah? No. Not even then, it says. Ramban says the exile was not over until the Jewish people built the Mishkan. That is the tabernacle. It's amazing. Because you see, our exile, whether you realize it or not, we are in a spiritual exile right now. When is our exile going to end? When we return back to the land. And when we the land is connected with the third temple, by the way. And who's going to build the third temple? According to scripture, the Lord himself is going to build the third temple. Look. Exodus 25, 3 and 7. Moving on. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, a fine twine, linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and fragrant uh, and the fragrant incense. Ox, uh, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastplate. Now, do you know that each of these things, again, folks, I'm not going to go because timing in here, we only got an hour, but timing in here is crucial. Each and one of these things has a symbolic meaning, folks. Now, I'm going to, today, for the sake of time, I'm going to reveal what's most important. But that's a lot just on that. But Messiah. Let's stay focused with Messiah. How is Messiah in this right here? Let's look at this. Look. Rabbi Bayek from the Al-Kul Moshiach says this, the items for contribution mentioned here, verses 1 through 7, allude to the future redemption of Israel. How? Let's look at this. First of all, the oil for the lighting, Exodus 26.6, alludes to King Messiah. How is the oil allude to King Messiah? They look what it says in here, Psalms 132.17. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my who? anointed. You know that the word anointed is the same thing for the oil? And do you know that the anointed, the oil, is what produces the or the light in Hebrew? Didn't he say that he's the light of the world? See the connection here. They're saying that this connects already with the future redemption because it's connecting to the tabernacle. They're connecting the seventh day with the day that the tabernacle of the Lord will be there and Messiah will be reigning. Look, the spices for the anointing oil, Exodus 25, 6, allude to the future anointing of the high priest, which will be accomplished through Messiah. This is amazing, the fragrant. The fragrant incense, 26, 6, alludes to the ingathering of the exiles. How did they determine that? Ezekiel 20, 41 says, as a what? Soothing aroma. That's the fragrant incense. As a soothing aroma. I will accept you when I bring you from out of the people. Wow, what a connection. Look. The onyx stones. Exodus 25, 7. Allude to the ruby stones of the new Jerusalem, folks. Do you realize that it's going to be a new Jerusalem? Okay. Isaiah 54, 12 says, Moreover, I will make you battlements of what? Rubies, which is connecting with the onyx stones. Setting stones for, for the ephod, Exodus 25, 7, allude to the crystal gems of the new Jerusalem. 
and the gates, Isaiah 54, 12, and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of what? Precious stones. This is all connecting with the tabernacle. Remember, this is the tabernacle now. These are the materials that I needed to build this tabernacle that is alluding to the future tabernacle that will stand forever. Exodus 25, 8. Then it says, and let them make me a sanctuary, it says, that I may dwell in their midst, it says. Now, this is interesting because of the way this reads in Hebrew, it says, Be'asuli mikdash be'shachanti betoham. Do you realize that the purpose of the sanctuary was for God to dwell in you? Literally, this word in Hebrew, betoham, literally means the center. He wants, and in Jewish thought, the center is your heart of your body. He wants to be in you. He said, build this for me so that I can dwell in you, essentially. Now, this, I mean, this, we can go for hours on this alone, but again, really running in time. So let's look at this real quick. Mikdash. That is what is translated as the sanctuary. It says, Ve'asuli mikdash. Built for me a sanctuary. It is the Hebrew word mikdash, which means a sanctuary. But look at the real terminology for this Hebrew word. It means dedicated. It means consecrated, sanctified. Look, betrothed. Somebody got it. Betrothed. Isn't Jesus coming back for a bride? You getting this? But when did we get betrothed? Has anybody asked that question? When did we become betrothed to him? The Mikdash is the sanctuary, the sanctuary, this sanctuary needs to be a sanctuary. Keep in, t keep in mind, not just the building, but your physical being. This sanctuary needs to be dedicated. This sanctuary needs to be sanctified. This sanctuary essentially needs to be betrothed to him. You cannot claim to be the temple of the living God, folks, if your temple is not sanctified. Do you know that that even applied back then and even in the New Testament? And I got lots of New Testament scriptures. Paul talked about sanctification all the time. How can God, who is holy, perfect, and just, come and dwell in a house that's dirty? Come on, begs the question, folks. If, we, if we're talking about the same God, it begs the question. So, look at this, folks. This is going to be really cool. Mikdash means something that's betrothed. You become betrothed when you enter into covenant. And to enter into a covenant, there needs to be an exchange of what? Words. How many of you marry here? Okay, when you marry your wife, didn't you say words to her? Vows? Thank you. Right? Can I ask you a question? Was that legalist? Was it legalism? Because you can look at your wife now and tell her you're being a legalist. As a matter of fact, I'm taking the ring back, and I want back my money. Because you know that I love you, baby, no matter what. So technically, we really, I don't have to say it. Right? And God forbid, I definitely don't have to show you a ring. How would that sit well in your stomach, folks, if your bride said that to you? Think about it. You know, a lot of times we don't think about these things. But this is the perspective that Abino Martino, our father, he wants us to see. See, we made a vow with him, a marriage vow with him, and we said that we will be obedient to him. 
Just like you made a, ma a marriage vow with your wife and you said that you will be what? Committed to her, didn't you? And to when? That's to our part. Again, folks, perspective. I can say right now, if I'm a bachelor, I can say, you know what? Your wife, is, it's, she's putting you in bondage, man. The fact that you got a ring, <laughs> yeah, she's got you hooked. Right? I mean, I could. If we follow the same training of thought, the way we're treating the covenant of God, then it stands true that we can say the same thing about relationship between one another. True? We can be biased in our opinion, folks. Yeshua said that when we judge, it needs to be righteous standards. We cannot show partiality. So if it stands true that that is true with the covenant with God, then it stands true with one another. So look at this. Samson Raphael Hirsch says this. The commandment uses two terms to refer to the tabernacle. Now this is very important. Because it says the mikdash, which we just read, right? It says that you are to build a mikdash for me. That is a sanctuary. But we know that this sanctuary has to be dedicated. But look at this. Which implies what? Holiness. Because mikdash, the root word, the Hebrew word, root word is kadosh. So the temple needs to be a holy temple, folks. Not just any temple. Do you know that back then in the ancient Near East culture, there was temples everywhere? The pagans have temples. That's why you got to understand, again, from a cultural point of view, God is saying, I want you to build me a sanctuary, but I don't want your sanctuary to be like the Canaanite sanctuary. I don't want your sanctuary to be like the Egyptian sanctuary. I don't want your, again, I don't want it to look like the Jebusites. I want, that's why he's very specific when he says, this is the house that I want you to prepare for me. It needs to be very specific. He's very adamant about this. Watch. It says in here, which implies holiness, and Mishkan. That Hebrew word is in there also. Mishkan means, which can be translated literally as a resting place. In other words, God wants you to create a, 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 a what? A mikdash so that he can shakan in you. So he can rest upon you, essentially. Look, this implies that the Mishkan had two purposes. The, the tabernacle had two purposes. It was to be a place of holiness, okay? Meaning that the structure and his vessel should be sacred. It was also to be a place where his presence can dwell. Getting that. It's more than just building a temple, folks. It's more than just saying, God, here I am. You have to also be acceptable for him to dwell in you. That's true, okay? In other words, let me put it this way to you guys. Think of a person that you admire the most. Here, now don't say God, please. We all know that God is the, the ultimate. But in, in flesh, I'm, I'm, I want to speak in human terms so that you can understand this. Think of somebody that you admire so much that you have, wow, I think of this person way up here. And he, maybe that person is famous too. Everybody knows him. That person is saying to you, you know what? Out of all the people that I know and all the riches that I have, I want to come and visit you. Can you make me, uh, can you make me something for me to stay so I don't have to rent the hotel? Would you just, I don't know, put something together with pallets and throw a little sleeping bag on the floor? You know, maybe a, like a shower around? You wouldn't, would you? You will offer that guest the best. Anyway, 
I'm assuming. You will offer him the best. You will build the best. You will give him the best. You will make sure that that place is spotless and clean. That's the same thought when he said, build for me a sanctuary. Now, from a spiritual point of view, we need to understand what does it mean to clean the sanctuary because obviously we're not going to come on a broom and do this, right? And what lights off. We need to understand what it means spiritual cleansing, but that's for another day. Look, let's continue on here. By extension, it says in here, however, it also refers to the consecration of our lives. This is what now it gets good. Now, Hirsch is saying that this whole sanctification of the temple, essentially he's giving you the answer. It is what? The consecration of our lives so that we personally will be a mikdash, a sanctuary worthy of his presence. You have to clean your tabernacle so that he can dwell in you, folks. It's not all, well, Jesus did it, so I don't have to do nothing. You have a responsibility to do, folks. He did the most important part. He redeemed you. Now he's asking you to walk in his redemption, to learn about him, folks. We have to see this through the eyes of the culture, folks. Back then, Israel knew a lot of gods. Being in, the, in Egypt, they were influenced by all these different deities. God took him to the wilderness so that they can what? Purge from all that. So they can re so they can relearn how to approach a holy God, folks. What reverence, fear, and holiness. Look, once we have accomplished that, the building and the nation can be a dwelling place for his presence. I will submit to you that we're in that stage of our lives of cleansing ourselves so that he can dwell in us as a nation, not just as an individual, but as a nation. Look, in the, the, in the claying edition of the Mishkan, it says this. As is well known, the menorah signified the light of the Torah. Okay? Which illuminates the world. Wow, this is so, this is what Yeshua said. I have come because I am the light of the world. I illuminate the light of the world. The table. You know the inside, there was the table, the shukhan. It says, the table with its tears of showbread signified prosperity and material success in this world. The menorah and the table were situated opposite of each other. If you look in the tabernacle, the way that was set up, it was opposite of each other. There was a reason for that. What was the reason for that? This signifies that work and material gain in this world must be regulated by and performed according to the Torah. Because the Torah is lighting that. So it's an exposure when you really think about it. Look, so what was the purpose for the tabernacle then, folks? So that Hashem may dwell among us, folks. Do you know that that's always been the purpose of the Creator? The purpose of the Creator has always been not to have a tabernacle where He's separated from you, but that He may actually dwell in you. That's always been His goal. Look, in Tahumaya Shana says this, When the Holy One, blessed is He, said to Moses that He should say to Israel that they should make Him a Mishkan, a tabernacle, God said to Moses, Tell Israel, as it were, it is not because I have nowhere to dwell that I tell you to make me a tabernacle. He didn't say make me something because I'm homeless. Until the world was created, my sanctuary was above. But because of my love for you, he says, I will leave my sanctuary and descend and dwell among you. As the Torah says, they shall make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. The purpose is that the creator doesn't need a home, folks. In his love for us, he descends from his heavenly above to come and dwell in you. 
Do you think that we have a responsibility then? He's leaving his tabernacle to come dwell in you. Talk about love and mercy. Look, Rabbi Chaim Yosef says this. This Torah portion gives us the condition also for the coming of the Messiah. The return of Jesus in this portion. Look. And the third temple. What is it that makes a mikdash, folks? Before I get into that, and we're almost done here. What is it that makes a mikdash? A sanctuary. Think about it. We just discovered what the word means. Mikdash means a sanctuary, but it also means someone who's dedicated, someone who's betrothed, someone who's sanctified. But look at this, folks. What makes this word mikdash is the kuf in Hebrew. What is the kuf signified? The rabbis explain that what makes the mikdash is the, the one letter inside. The kuf means kedushah in Hebrew. That means sanctification. Now, I'm going to flip this now. If we remove this letter, that's why Yeshua said that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophet because not one jot or tittle will be done away with. You want to know why? Let me show you why. One letter. That's what I'm going to remove. It's one letter. If we remove this Kedushah, if we remove sanctification from the word Mikdash, which is temple, if we just remove that one little letter, what happens? You get Shamet. What does Shamet mean? Vanity. We went from sanctification by removing, by removing sanctification from the temple, we have vanity now. What does that mean? That if we are not building a temple that is sanctified, then it's all in vanity. Look, I have proof of this. If the temple is not being built in holiness, then guess what? Then our actions are in vain. Let's show this. Psalms 127, 1 and 2. I got proof for it. Unless Hashem builds the temple, the house, those who build it labor in what? Vain. If he is not building it, if you're not allowing him to direct his word upon you, and you're not following what he says, folks, guess what? It's all in vain. It's still a temple. It's still a sanctuary. The problem is that it's a sanctuary that is in vain now. Look, unless Hashem watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep, it says. Look, Isaiah uh, 113 says, bring no more what? Vain offerings. Was there a problem with the offerings, folks? No. They were prescribed according to the law. But what was the problem then? They were vain. Their hearts were not right. Yeshua said that before you bring the offering to the altar, reconcile with your brother first. Did he not say those words? This goes back to this, folks. It's not that he's saying that the offerings are not important. He's just saying that your heart needs to come in agreement with the offerings. See, we get sidetracked. Now we, now we accuse the offerings. See, God didn't want offerings. Those things are just blood. He doesn't like that. It had nothing to do with that. He ordained that. It was the fact that they came with a wrong heart. Yeah, I'm going to bring the offering. But I can't wait to beat my brother up. Here, here's the offering. Doesn't work that way. See, the Torah, as we render as law today, 
causes us and it forces us to look within ourselves. That's the that's why people don't like law. They don't like Torah because the Torah, as Paul says, reveals sin in us. We don't like that. Ooh, I'm about ugly. Ooh. But there's a reason why the Torah is revealing the sin in us. It's not to accuse you. It's not to condemn you. It's so that you can what? Change. So you can become a perfect offering for him, folks. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, he says. Did he not declare incense in the tabernacle? We're going to learn about this. Yes, he did. He prescribed it. So is the problem the offering or is the problem of the worshiper who's bringing the offering? The worshiper who's bringing the offering. Look, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation I cannot endure. Iniquity and solemn assemblies I cannot endure, he says. Does that mean that God doesn't like Sabbaths anymore? <coughs> that he doesn't like the calling of the convocation? You know what that means, literally, in English? The gathering of his people? Does that mean that God doesn't want to gather his people? That goes contrary to the whole theme of the Bible, folks. It's not about that. It's about the hearts of the people when they came to do these things. Look, Sforno says this. The tabernacle was made necessary only because Israel's lapsed into virtual idolatry. That's the reason why the, uh, the tabernacle was even uh, created. Because now God cannot dwell in people, so now he needs a place to be close to them. Because if he dwells in us, guess what? We're going to blow up like a C4. That's the problem. We'll be consumed. So in his mercy, he's saying, I'm, I want you to build a sanctuary for me so that I can come down. My Shekinah glory can come down and you can have fellowship with me without being burned out. What a merciful God that is. I'm too much for you. You will die. By the way, why do you think he sent his Messiah? So that the people won't be consumed. Who lived inside the Messiah? Holy Father. Look. He maintains that no temple should have been needed after the, the revelation in Sinai. Why? Because of the spiritual level that the people receive at that point. Okay. The entire nation achieved a level of prophecy and every Jew was worthy of the Shekinah to rest upon him as it later did on the tabernacle or in the temple. Only after Israel fell from the high level of spirituality as a result of the golden calf. What did they do? They built a golden calf. And they say, this is the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, we're going to talk about that when we get into the book of Numbers. I'm not going to talk. It's, there's a lot more than what you read that goes entail to that. So because of that, they say, it was necessary for a central sanctuary, folks. That's why it's important to understand temple service and order. One of the things that the Father is revealing to temple service is order. The body right now is disorderly. We don't know order because we don't know temple. We don't know temple because we don't see the significance in our lives. You see how the enemy works. If I want to destroy a nation, folks, all I have to do is take order out of the nation. If order is out of the nation, that's it. Now you have an anarchy. And every man is on his own. Everybody's scattering everywhere. And I see that disease in the body right now. Everybody has prophet syndrome. Well, the Lord told me that I need to go over here. Yet, everything that he's saying that the Lord told him goes contrary to scripture. Imagine that. Well, the Lord told me that I need to go kill that man. Right. Thus says the Lord, so I guess it's what God wants. Let me go ahead and pull my 45 and shoot him. You know, we don't, we don't sit here and we don't test the spirits, as Hashem says. Apostle Paul said, test all spirits. And we don't test the spirits because we don't believe in leadership anymore. 
and we don't believe in accountability anymore. Everybody's angry because they've been lied to, and everybody's scattered. And guess what? The tabernacle of David cannot be rebuilt. Not with this attitude that people have. First thing, folks, in tabernacle is order. As a matter of fact, every aspect of the tabernacle had a place where the priests could be and could not be. If you were caught in an area that you were not supposed to be, guess what would happen? You would die. If everybody can just understand that that order is important, folks, that's the problem. Today, well, I don't like what Richard's preaching. And I feel that I can do a better job there. Maybe, maybe half of you could. I could care less. Because this ain't about memory. This ain't about my show. I can care less. Maybe most of you could do a better job than me. But God has appointed me. Simply put. Simply put. Whether you can do it better, hey, more power to you. Why don't you figure out what God wants you to do instead? Instead of worrying about what I'm doing. That's the problem with the body today. We have a disease. Oh, because I feel that I can do better. I'm going to leave my post and I'm going to go do Richard's post now. The problem is that now that you abandon your post and now this part of the post is coming down. The tabernacle is lopsided now. Cannot stand if we don't take our post, folks. First thing is biblical order. Something that's long gone and lost completely. Bible says that we are a priesthood to him. We cannot be a priesthood if we don't have order. I want to tell you right now, we're not edifying nobody out there. We're not drawing people into the kingdom because when the people look at the Messianic movement, what they see is a bloody mess. What they see is a bunch of radicals. What they see is a bunch of anarchy attitude. And you know what? I'm not going to learn from no man. I'm better. I know more than that guy. I studied longer than he did. Well, maybe you did. Again, has God ordained you? You know, <laughs> We cannot go to Google and say, you know, Google rabbi, Google pastor, and I'm going to go ahead and print out my certificate. I got it. Okay. I'm ordained by God. doesn't work that way, folks. Okay. We have to follow the channels that the tabernacle reveals to us. All the priests were ordained properly according to the way Hashem said that they are to be ordained. Whether we believe it or like it or not is the way he has it said. It's not for us to like it. It's for us to do. So, Yeshua is the tabernacle. I'm going to finalize with this. Shadows of Messiah, volume 2, says this. Messiah fulfills this passage literally as the tabernacle. That's why it's important to understand tabernacle, because if we understand tabernacle, we understand Yeshua better. Look, while he was among us in the flesh, the physical body of Yeshua created a perfect sanctuary for God to dwell among his people. Why does he say that when he came to us, he was called what? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God dwell among us. That's the tabernacle. See, this all goes back to tabernacle. Look. So it says in here, um, this is why Yeshua spoke of himself as the temple of God. He warned, destroy this temple in three days. I'll rise it up again. Did he not say that in the book of John? His body was a spiritual temple, the holy dwelling place of God. He was speaking of the temple of his body. These words hint towards the connection between the physical body of Yeshua and the holy temple in Jerusalem, folks. Yeshua's suffering and death corresponds to the destruction of the temple. 70 AD, the destruction of the temple became destroyed also. This is really amazing, the analogies in here. His resurrection, however, corresponds to the temple in the Messianic era, folks. That's how we know that there's going to be a third temple when he returns. Look, Jeremiah, this connects with the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law. What is the new covenant? It says it right here. Why is this important? Because in the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle is the temple of the living God. You are part of that tabernacle, right? How was the And we're going to learn this through from here on out, guys. It's going to get really, really good. Because what was the first thing that was built in the tabernacle? The inside, the Aaron, where the ark would go. Do you know that in Jewish thought, the ark is known as the heart? Do you know what went inside the ark? What went inside the ark? The law. <laughs> this is what the covenant, Jeremiah 31 says, I will put my law in your heart, in your Aaron, in the temple. You see, if you remove the law from the temple, then it's no longer sanctified. This is important. Sanctification according to his word. For not ours, his word. So it says, I will make a new covenant. I love it. Because the new covenant was already prophesied. But yet today, people are trying to figure out what is the new covenant. Well, guess what? Jeremiah told us what the new covenant is. Moses, by the way, and we're going to find out as we go through the Pasha, reveal what the new covenant was already well. Everything was already prophesied, spoken. Everything. Nothing new under the skies. I will put my law within them. You know that that word within them is the word that we just studied? When he says that I will come and I will dwell in their midst. Build me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. That is exactly the same word in here when he says that I will write it within them. So the law is not done away with. On the other hand, the law is coming closer to you now. That's the purpose. Because you see, the Creator is restoring everything back. You've got to remember, temple, temple language, He's restoring everything back. Everything has to go back to the original, the way it was. So it says in here, I will put my law within their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here we go again, that statement. How is He becoming your God? And how do you become His people? When the law is in your heart. When you follow obedience from a pure heart, pure heart, folks, not in legalism, in a pure heart. When you decide this is the temple of the living God and I will not defile it for the sake of the world, I will stand in truthfulness because I want to prepare a home for my king. Is he your king? Then he is worthy to have a temple to come and dwell in. That means that you need to die to your ideology and you need to allow the king to rest in you. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. Do you know that time is going to come? That that's going to happen? We no longer have to say, hey, come and learn about the Lord. Why? Because it says that the Torah will be in their hearts. So what is the goal of the Father? That everybody, the goal is that everybody will have the law in their hearts. His law in their hearts. Is that going to happen? No. It's going to happen for those who love him. Simply put. Look, they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. There's forgiveness of sin, by the way, even in the Old Testament. There's forgiveness of sin. It's always been that way, folks. But you don't run a red light and tell the cop, thank you, and now go ahead and do it again. You understand this? Yes, he forgave us for our sins. Yes, he died for us. But that, for more of a reason... Is why we have to follow obedience. We cannot let his death be in vain. When we return back to the idolatry that we grew up with, folks, we are essentially saying that his blood avails nothing. The writer of Hebrews says that. I'm not saying it. 2 Corinthians 6.16 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, now Paul's talking in here in terminologies of temple service. We've got to now understand this through temple service. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? In other words, for we are the what? The temple of the living God. Meaning, Paul said this. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We read that just now in Jeremiah 31. But what is the conditions for him being our God and us being his people? The law is the central focus of everything, folks. Why are we in the mess that we're in today? Because we have rebelled against the mighty one of Israel, folks. And he is trying to restore everything back to perfection. Oh, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you, it says. Whom you have from God, you are not what? Your own. If we can only just understand that part right there, then we won't have a problem doing what God says because guess what? You're not your own. God says, don't do this. Guess what? I don't care if society says that it's okay to do it. I'm not going to do it. Who are you going to submit to? Well, my pastor says this. Okay, great. You know, that's a good valid thing. Your pastor said so. Now let's go check the word. I don't expect you to take my word for it today. I expect you to go home and study. Right? Don't take my word for it. This salvation has to be yours, not mine. I got my salvation, folks. I'm living my salvation. It needs to become part of you. That's the problem. We become so complacent. Say, oh, the pastor said so, so it must be okay. No. Check it out. The witnesses have to verify. Yeshua said on the count of two, three witnesses. What establishes true. So if you're telling me that Paul said that we cannot, we don't have to follow the law, then okay, great. You're right. He did say it. Much has been said, little's been understood. But okay, we'll take that for for we'll take that for an answer. Paul did say, okay, now you need to give me another witness. Does Peter say the same thing? Does the prophet say the same thing? We need to go back to the Old Testament and get prophet. That's what they're there for. Did Isaiah said that this was going to happen? Witnesses, folks. Witnesses is important. It says that you are the temple of the living God. So we're going to conclude with this today, folks. Sorry that I went a little bit over the timing here. And the final scripture for today, because it is the goal what the Heavenly Father is leading us, is out of Revelation 21, 21. When it's all finalized and done. And I saw no temple in the city, it says. This is after the millennium reign. This is after the, the, the rest, the Sabbath rest, the millennium Sabbath rest. At the end of that, He's going to re-everything. He's going to restore the heavens and the earth. The prophet Isaiah says that there's going to be a great fire that's going to purify the heavens and the earth. Everything is going to be purified, folks. And after that, the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven. What a glorious day that's going to be, folks. And upon that, it says that in the temple, and there he sit and see no temple. In the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. Why there's no temple? Because we all have incorruptible bodies now. Now, you see, what we're reading in here in Revelation 21 is going back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve had that personal relationship with Hashem and there was no need for a temple. You're getting this. That's the purpose of the temple, folks, to make us understand. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the, and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon or to shine on it. For the glory of the Lord, the menorah that was in the temple, 
They light up everything. It says the, this is what's going to give the light. The glory of the Lord is going to be its light. And its lamp, its lamp, you know what that word there in Greek is? It translates back to the Hebrew word menorah. The lamp is nip in Hebrew. It's the lamp it says. It's saying that Yeshua, Jesus, is the menorah. This is amazing. See, this is why it's important to connect with temple service so that we can understand that the temple service is very much so connected with the Messiah, folks. It's not detached. It's connected. So my prayer today, when we finalize with this, is that we today will walk out of here with a purpose. Seriously. A purpose. That we start examining our lives. That we will build the tabernacle of the Lord, starting with us. And that we will bring that free will contribution within yourself, folks. Meaning, these are things that you need to surrender to the Father. Because otherwise, the body's not going to be built. And at the same token, folks, we need to be careful, since we're talking about the topics of the temple, we need to be careful what we put in our body at the same time. True? Because if you are the temple of the living God, and today we didn't talk about it, but we're going to be talking about it in the next few parashas, the offerings. What offerings were accepted in the temple? Think about that. What were the offerings that were accepted? What we, and remember, who partook of those offerings? The priest. Food for thought, folks. A lot of things that we need to think about. You know, if we're calling ourselves the temple of the living God, and I fully agree, we need to walk in it. No more I, I speak, but I do contrary. This is what's driving everybody away. Everybody away. I speak, I talk the good talk, but I don't walk the good walk. Let's walk the good walk. Let's give our lives and surrender everything to him for the purpose of his glory. Amen? So this is the half Torah for uh, Teruma. And as we always do, we take a look at why we look at the half Torah portion. Right? It's not half of the Torah. It's, uh, half Torah is its own word that means complete, um, complete portion. That's the second witness. We look for connections. And of course, we try to draw from those lessons that apply to our lives. And then shout it from the walls with the shofar. So about this half Torah portion. In 1 Kings, we just read, it covers Solomon's effort to obtain the stones needed for the house. And then the second half covers the beginning of the building of the house. Right? It doesn't get all the way through the, the building. Um, there's actually a parallel account that can be found in 2 and 3 of 2 Chronicles as well. So it's always interesting that when you read one of these portions in Kings, they kind of go to the 2 Chronicles portion and, and find the, uh, the parallel. Because there's, sometimes there's different information. So let's find out what connections we can find. Hopefully you guys saw a connection between this Haftorah portion and the Torah portion. Great, don't all say it at once. <laughs> the obvious connection, of course, would be the tabernacle or the temple, right? And so here we have the tabernacle. And here we have the temple. So we're going to take a look at some of the differences and some of the similarities between them and see what we find. There they are. Again, uh, first thing we're going to look at is the, uh, who designed the structure. Where did the plan come from? Who was the architect of the structure? And for the tabernacle, we saw that uh, Hashem speaks to Moses and shows him the pattern up on the mountain. Right. So he spoke to him and he also showed him a, a, a copy of it. It's somehow a 3D image of the thing, or maybe it was a physical thing, or we don't know, but it was showed to him physically. And of course, with the temple, we see that Hashem spoke to David uh, through prophets as well, and who then instructed Solomon to build it out upon his passing. All right? 
The next one is the time frame for building. And it's interesting there's a connection there because the tabernacle was just a few months after coming out of Egypt, right? Definitely less than a year. And the temple, it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, 480 years after coming out of the land of Egypt. So there's a connection there. Um, the actual materials used for the tabernacle versus the temple is different, right? The tabernacle being portable was used cloth and curtains, and whereas the temple was done out of stone walls, right? Um, and those walls, it's interesting that they were, they were hewn from a quarry, right, far away. Uh, and there's a verse that talks about, or a commandment that talks about, don't use um, hewn stone for the altar, right? And we're going to see how Solomon actually honors that by keeping the, the hewing of the stones far away so it was not even heard, right? That wasn't necessarily something that maybe had to happen, but it was kind of in that same vein of honoring the temple and, and that site. How the materials were obtained, big difference here, right? For the tabernacle, it was a free will offering we heard Pastor Richard speak about. He gave freely. This is the same, where'd they get the stuff to give, right? When they plundered Egypt, when they simply asked, hey, we're leaving, we, we want to be, take some stuff, we want to gladly give gold and silver and precious metals, and they, they took off with all of that. And then, of course, Hashem asked for some of that for the temple. How much do you want to give now, right? It was given freely to you. How much do you want to give? We see a little difference here in the Haftar portion with Solomon. Forced labor? Wait, wait that's, a, that's a complete 180, isn't it? What's, I think it was 80,000 stone cutters and 70,000 people to haul the, um, the rocks back to the place. And of course, with 3,300 supervisors to rule over those folks. And it talks about the, the shifts they would take, kind of working one month and um, off two. So forced labor is a lot different than the free will offering. And we'll see that, that kind of leans towards where we're going with this here. Interesting comment about the size of the structure, right? It measures it in cubits. And what's a cubit? Well, it can be really anywhere from 18 inches to 20, 24, approaching 24, but um, typically it's 21, 22 inches. Here's the thing, though. Each nation would have a cubit that was customary for their nation, but the nations the, themselves had different cubits amongst, between them. So that wasn't even a standard of between nation to nation. And then you add in the idea of what's a royal cubit, which is just a little bit larger as well. So um, if you want to think about it, when we talk about cubits, if you think about 24 inches or, or two feet, that's a good number to kind of give you a, a sense in terms of feet to our, to our American measurements. Um, we see with the tabernacle, it was 30 by 10, right? So 60 feet by 20 feet. Um, and the tabernacle, or the temple itself, was actually double that, exactly double that in 60 by 20 cubits, so 120 by 40 feet, right? And a little bit taller as well. So let's take a look at the next one. The idea of rooms or areas within the temple, within the tabernacle. We see there was a courtyard, and there was a holy place, right? And there was a holy of holies. So this is, a, this is your Hebrew moment, right? Your Hebrew <coughs> highlight, if you will. So we're going to take a look at the different yeah, Hebrew words that were used in, in the readings. So in the Torah portion, the courtyard is called a chatzer, right? And the holy place would be called the kodesh. Kodesh means holy. So that makes sense. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see that the Holy of Holies is Kadesh Ha Kodeshim. It's really Kodesh Kodesh, right? So it's Kodeshim is the Holy of Holies. Remember the I am, the Eim is a way that Hebrew makes plural. So the Holy of Holies. It's funny that in our First Kings portion, they use different, different words for it. The Ulam is really maybe more porch, so maybe the difference is courtyard versus porch. That'd be this area here in front. Um, the holy place itself was Chaikal. And Haikal is more of a, a sanctuary, or it could be called temple. And of course, the inner, the innermost sanctuary is called 
Debir, the Holy of Holies. And Debir comes from Debar, which is the Word. Right? The indication here is this is where in the Holy of Holies, in this innermost sanctuary, is where God's speaking with, with man. Right? So we want to take a look at the, uh, how, the, how these lay out, these three different rooms. So I got a floor plan for you. So you kind of, this is the eastward. And they move, the priest would move in and move to the porch, and then into the holy place, and then into the holies of holies, only, only very rarely, right, once a year. So it's even that much more set apart. So the holy place is set apart, and then even more set apart is the holy of holies, right? And so, you know, so there's like storerooms. And our Torah portion, or half Torah portion, I should say, talks a lot about the chambers or storerooms that go around it, right? The, there, some Bibles will call them the annex. So if our body is the temple, I guess this is my annex right here. This is, <laughs> my storeroom, if you will. But we want to take a look at this, uh, the storerooms, and it talks a lot about how they were built, and so I wanted to show a, a three-dimensional kind of fly-through um, uh, of the temple and, and get a sense of what it actually looks like, right? And there's something that's going to be talked about in the Sea of Bronze that I mentioned ahead of time to talk about how many baths are in there. And a bath actually is about close to six gallons, it's 5.9 gallons. So if you think of six gallons, when you hear these numbers, um, you can, you'll see what we mean by that's a lot of water. Um, let's take a look at how these storerooms are built as well. That's going to be very interesting to pay attention to. And it came to pass in the 480th year, after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, that he began to build the house of the Lord. And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof twenty cubits, and the height thereof thirty cubits. And the porch before the temple of the house, twenty cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and ten cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. And for the house he made windows of narrow lights. And against the wall of the house he built chambers round about, five cubits high, and they rested on the house with timber of cedar. The nethermost chamber was five cubits broad, and the middle was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For without in the wall of the house he made narrowed rests round about, that the beams should not be fastened in the walls of the house. The door for the middle chamber was in the right side of the house, and they went up with winding stairs into the middle chamber, and out of the middle into the third. And the house, that is, the temple before it, was forty cubits long. And the oracle in the forepart was twenty cubits in length, and twenty cubits in breadth, and twenty cubits in the height thereof. And within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive tree, each ten cubits high. And he set the cherubims within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubims, so that the wing of the one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall and their wings touched one another in the midst of the house. And he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers, within and without. And the whole house he overlaid with gold, until he had finished all the house. And for the entering of the oracle he made doors of olive tree. The lintel and side posts were a fifth part of the wall, so also made he for the door of the temple posts of olive tree, a fourth part of the wall. And the two doors were of fir tree. The two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. 
and he carved thereon cherubims and palm trees and open flowers, and covered them with gold fitted upon the carved work. And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the table of gold, whereupon the showbread was, and the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left, before the oracle with the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold. And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jachin. And he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz. And upon the top of the pillars was lily work, so was the work of the pillars finished. And he made a molten sea, ten cubits from the one brim to the other. It was round all about, and his height was five cubits, and a line of thirty cubits did compass it round about. It stood upon twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, and three looking toward the west, and three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. And the sea was set above upon them, and all their hinder parts were inward. And it was an hand breadth thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup with flowers of lilies. It contained two thousand baths. And he made ten bases of brass. Four cubits was the length of one base, and four cubits the breadth thereof, and three cubits the height of it. And on the borders that were between the ledges were lions, oxen, and cherubims. And every base had four brazen wheels, and the work of the wheels was like the work of a chariot wheel. Then made he ten lavers of brass. One laver contained forty baths, and upon every one of the ten bases, one laver. And he put five bases on the right side of the house, and five on the left side of the house. And he set the sea on the right side of the house eastward over against the south. So was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. So this fly-through covered all of chapter 6. And, and our half-Torah portion only really goes up to verse 13 or so. It really just covers the walls and the structure getting to that point, right? But that's a lot of effort, right? There's a lot he went through here. Um, and we, if we look closer at Solomon's effort, he's got um, stone being quarried way far away and being brought in there. Every effort's expended, right? There's gold, silver, uh, other precious metals are all, all brought together, all, all uh, constricted or constrict. Thank you that word taken from the um, from, from around and from the, from the peoples and from the uh, treasuries of, of Israel right um, the expending of resources was immense right the attention the care energy we got the expense we got the people that are used the sole focus on this project so was Solomon um, correct in expending this much effort for God's house I, I'd say yeah right for sure, right? It's God's house. Now, Solomon also knew that you can't build a box, you can't build a house that contained the heavenly creator, but yet it's a place that Abba said he would come and dwell with us, right? But there's a certain way it had to be built, a certain way it had to be done, and to make it worthy of his presence there as well. So it was definitely worth Solomon's effort, but there's an interesting uh, thing that happens in chapter 6. We get this interruption right in the middle of chapter 6, which is our last three verses of our, our uh, half Torah portion. And it's chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. And you see, Then the word of Yahweh came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, 
That kind of made me chuckle. You can almost see God saying, yeah, so um, about this house, you know, let's talk. Right? He's got something to say to Solomon here. Keep in mind, the rest of the chapter after verse 13 goes on to finish that building. that We saw that fly through. All the detail is, is, is uh, described, and you see how Solomon was building it, but yet there's this interruption right here. And the message Yahweh has to Solomon is, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, if you do this, then I will do this. I will perform my word, which I spoke to David. Your father, right? I will dwell among the children of Israel, not forsake them. So this idea of an if-then statement is, is useful in computer language or an Excel formula or programming, where it's a finite thing. If this happens, then this will happen. And if this doesn't happen, then this other thing will happen. And it's, it's, it's put down in writing, and that is the way it has to be. And this is what God has done here. He's saying, if you walk in my statutes, I will perform my word with you. The opposite would be, if you don't, then I will not be. And when the promise was given to David, this same caveat was mentioned, right? If your children continue to keep my statutes, they will, you always have somebody on the throne, right? And so, what's going on here is I think Yahweh could see that Solomon had perhaps less than pure motives, right? Because what happens when you spend all that effort, let's back up, all that effort in bringing it to fruition. Well, you're going to feel like, hey, God has to perform his word that he kept to my father David. This is what Solomon wanted most, was to have those promises that David received to be passed on to him. And so it's almost like he's forcing God's hand, right? Like when there's, like if you made a huge donation to the um, United Way, a million dollars, you're going to have some say into how maybe how they operate. You want to maybe, you, there's going to be, there's just, rarely is it just given freely without any strings attached, right? But God doesn't work that way. He stops in the middle of the building and says to Solomon, time out. You have to keep my statues. You just find that you're building all this. I'm glad you're doing that. This is more important than all that effort that you are expending, than all of that, um, than all of that resources you're spending. You can't, do, you can't do enough to force me to perform my work. You need to keep my Keep my statutes, keep my judgments, keep my commandments. God is hitting them all, right? The statutes, the hukak, uh, the judgments, is the mish, mishpatim, and the commandments is the misvotes, right? And the idea of walking in them is the halakha, that Richard speaks about a lot, right? It's the halak. And would you be surprised to learn that the word keep is the same as the guard, which is shamar, where we get the shema. Shema, my commandments, and walk in them, right? And so this is what God wants, wants from us, what he wanted from Solomon. He didn't really care so much about how much effort was being built, but you can see, he could see into Solomon's heart. And we can read later in Scripture about how Solomon falls away. And you can kind of see a glimpse of it right here. If you want to see how Solomon falls away, Ecclesiastes is a great read to see how he's gone so far and that he comes back around at the end. So we see these two as we look at the temple. There's a metaphor here that Richard was getting into this morning, right? Where the temple represents us. And, and as we go into the temple... We are going into from the east, right? And this is a connection actually with the, um, with the Garden of Eden. Again, you mentioned there's a, there's a ton here, but just to highlight this one point, the people in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, were walking with God. It's like they were in the Holy of Holies. They were walking with God, talking with God. They knew Him personally. He spoke with them. And yet when they sinned, they were kicked out to the east, and the guard was put there with the flaming sword. And here in the sanctuary, you have to enter from the east, so like retracing your steps, Enter from the east to get back into 
an inner sanctuary where, where God can speak with you, right? But you have to be in a proper state to do that. You have to be uh, set apart yourself to be able to go in there. And as we see these two, you know, the temple in the New Testament talks about it being um, it's our body, right? It's, it's, it's us as well. It symbolizes us. And as we go into God's inner sanctuary, he wants to come into our inner sanctuary. And the inside, in the, not just in our sanctuary, but in the innermost parts, which would be our heart, right? The Bible refers to our heart, or maybe it's the word kidneys. It means the inner, innermost, right? So our body's the temple, but then there's the innermost sanctuary as well. And he wants to be in there. So the analogy that we like to use sometimes when I'm working with, with teens is this idea of God wants to come in and clean, clean your rooms, right? He wants to clean your temple, if you will. We say, hey, sure, come on in. He cleans the living room, he cleans the bedroom, and he cleans over here in the kitchen, and he's, he's pulling out stuff, and the things that we've, we've gotten used to, the sin that we've allowed to be in our lives, the, uh, the things we think about, the things we do, the, thing, the way we react in anger, maybe, if we get triggered, right? Those things he wants to clean out. But then he gets to this one doorknob, he puts his hand on the doorknob. Well, no, 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 don't clean that one. I'm saving that one for me. But the rest of it, I want to be, I'm for you, God, all this, except just not that one, right? How hard is it then to get fully clean, to allow him to come in and clean our entire heart, to clean out our inner sanctuary, so that we can be holy and set apart to be able to meet with him in his inner sanctuary. And that's my prayer for you. Well, I didn't plan on talking about the order of things, per se, um, but I went in a direction that I actually honestly didn't think that I was even going to go down. Um, I don't. Maybe the Lord was presenting something to me this weekend, reminding me of past experience. We open up with Hebrews eight, um, verses one through five. It says, "Now the summary of what we are saying is that we have such a high priest, such a high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of uh, the greatness in in the heavens, and who serves in the set apart place and of the true tent, which Hashem set up, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and slaughterings." So it was also necessary for this one to have somewhat to offer. For if indeed he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to Torah. And who are those priests? They are the Levites. And as Richard was commenting in the prelude here, <laughs> Yeshua is from the tribe of Judah. He would not be a priest if he was here on earth. Blessed be his name that he's in heaven and he is our high priest standing before God at all times. So, uh, uh, priests who offer uh, gifts according to the Torah, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly, as Moshe was warned when he was about to make the tent. For he said, see that you make all according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. I want to take a look first at the word, that word copy. In, uh, in the Greek, it's hupodegma. Uh, it is a figure, a copy, an example, a model. It is a sign suggestive of anything, a delineation of a thing, a representation, a figure, a copy, like a facsimile, right? It's a representation of something, but it's not the original. Um, when, when, we, when we sign a document, often the, 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 the organization with whom we are make, entering into the agreement when we sign off, say we're getting a home loan uh, mortgage, they get to keep the originals, we get to keep the copy, right? Because the originals are the ones that we actually signed. But they get to hold in their presence saying that we are going to be uh, holding to this agreement and that we're going to pay, be paying back the money. It is an example for imitation with the genitive of the thing to be imitated. Well, 
as an example of that which is being imitated, Moshe saw a pattern of that which was in the heavens, and so he had that, that the idea, he had the understanding of what he was to build uh, in, in the wilderness. It comes from the word hupodeknumi, to show secretly, to show by tracing out, to teach, to make known. Well, to show secretly. I'd say that this copy, this understanding, this example, this blueprint was given to Moshe in a way that it was not given to anybody else. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't literally written out in blueprint. It wasn't put on the tablets. It was given to him by vision on the mountain. It was made known to him, though, by Hashem. Okay? Properly to show by placing under or before the eyes. To show by words and arguments, i.e. to teach. Okay? The other word I want to take a look at is the word shadow. And we're really going to concentrate on that word today. Because it's a shadow of that which is in the heavens. Colossians comes into agreement with this word. It says um, in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Let no one therefore judge you in eating or in drinking or in respect of a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Now, let me, let me preface this by saying, before I go on, by saying Paul's not writing here that you shouldn't do these things. He's saying when you do these things, you're going to be judged, but don't let that judgment affect you. Okay? Because these are Torah commandments for us to observe the festivals to the things that we eat and the things that we drink, and to come, come before him on the new moon and on the Sabbaths, right? Because those are the sign that we are his. But don't let the judgment of people affect your doing it. Do it anyway. Because isn't it better that he think highly of us than man think highly of us? So, Paul goes on to say that these are a shadow of that which is to come at the body of the Messiah. So this word shadow is the word skia in the Greek. It means shadow, shade, thick darkness, and outline. This might even be the, the, the word that's used in the Septuagint, translated into the, into the Greek, um, in the Old Testament, for when the darkness, the, dark, the plague of darkness was over the land of Egypt. I didn't, I didn't research it, but it, it is that kind of thick, thick darkness. It's properly a shadow or shade caused by the interception of light. I know Mark has seen this numerous Sabbaths where I'm sitting over there by the window next to, <laughs> next to the, the camera and my reflection, my, my shadow is being cast on the wall because of the reflection of the sun off of a windshield. So I, it's, I'm casting the shadow and it's shade caused by the interception of light. Okay? It's, the light's being stopped. It's an image cast by an object and representing the form of that object as opposed to the thing itself. Well, we all know that when we look down at our shadow, there's a form there that is kind of in the shape of us, but it's not the thing itself. It's not us ourselves, right? Webster's 1828, which we always like to go to, says that um, in, in the verb, in the excuse me, in the noun form, shade within defined limits it is obscurity or deprivation of light. Apparent on a plane. So as I'm standing here, I can look down and see my shadow on the plane that is the floor. Okay, um, representing the form of the body which intercepts the rays of light. As the shadow of a man, of a tree, or of a tower, the shadow of the earth in an eclipse of the moon is proof of its sphericity. Can you say that word, Mark? Sphericity. <laughs> it is darkness, it's shade, it is obscurity. I liked this one. It is an imperfect and faint representation opposed to substance. My shadow has no substance. It's just the lack of light that's being 
that should be allowed to cast but is being blocked by my body. It has no substance. It is imperfect because it doesn't show the details that, that my body shows, right? So it is as of the silhouette without the detail of that which casts the shadow. You may recognize this individual. You may not. It's okay if you don't. But I would imagine you probably do. When I was in the third grade, probably eight or nine, my mom took the, the lampshade off the lamp, put a, put, a, put a piece of white cardboard or construction paper on the wall, and, and, and drew my, the outline of my silhouette with me sitting there. And then we, and then we, we transferred it onto a black paper. She actually still has it somewhere. Um, and she, I, was I was actually talking to her about it today. And she said, she says, do, do you have that or do I have that? I said, I haven't seen it in years. It'd be interesting to look at it because I was only eight or nine years old at the time. But that idea came to mind to me this week. And so most of us know who this individual is, right? Is there anybody here that doesn't know who this is? It's, it's, it's Wesley, right? We all know it is Wesley, right? And you can see that right here. But you notice the difference between the silhouette and the actual photograph, because the photograph shows the detail. It shows his, with the location of his eyes and his ear, the forms around his lips, right? His eyebrows shows the delineation of the sweater that he was wearing. But when we go back to the silhouette, it doesn't show all that in, its, in, 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 in precision, right? In the absolute detail, right? I don't know where now where his ear was. I, I, you probably didn't even know that I, when I took the picture of him, that I was kind of at an angle looking up at him. You, you can't, you wouldn't know that. So here is this shadow. Well, let's take a look back at the things that the Torah calls us to do. All of these things are a shadow of that which is in the heavens, right? It's an, it's, it's imperfect. It's a form of, and it's a representation of, but there's an imperfection to it. And part of that imperfection is that we still have the sinful nature about us that we have to keep in control. It also has to do with the fact that, well, I, don't, I don't want to give it away yet. Let's, let's, let's go back over here. So um, Webster's 1828 also says that shadow is a verb. It says to cloud, to darken, to conceal, to hide, or to screen. Matthew chapter 4 says, leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Kephar Nahum, that is uh, Capernaum, for those of you who don't, don't know the Hebrew words which is by the sea in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, to, to fill what was spoken by Yeshiahu the prophet, saying, Land of Zebulun and Zen land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. And upon those who sat in the land and shadow of death, light arose to them. This is the same word. This is our word, skia. There was a shadow of death because of the decay of humanity, of this decaying existing world, because this world is still in its fallen state. Yeah. Webster's also said that, no, 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 one, more, uh, one more time, number eight was to represent faintly or imperfectly. Well, that's the kind of representation that our holy tabernacle and our, and our holy temple are here on the earth, because there is some imperfection to it, right? <coughs> Mark was talking today about the, 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 the hewing of the stone. And, and, and at least on the altar, there is not to be any stone that has been hewn with a, with a, with a tool. Right? It needs to be in its raw form on the, on the altar. Well, if we, if we consider that which is in the heavens to that which is on the earth, just about everything that we use is going to be very imperfect compared to that heavenly world. 
1 Corinthians uh, 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know as I also have been known. This idea of faintly or imperfectly or the shadow brought this particular verse to mind to me this week. Because we, we do see, we're looking at this world dimly. It's almost like your eyesight's going out and you don't have a pair of glasses to kind of bring everything into clarity. Uh, it's like looking through tinted windows on your automobile. The world that you see outside has been darkened a little bit. Well, compared to what he has in store for us, this world has been darkened a little bit. So that word dimly is the word enigmati. It is, it is where we get the word enigma. Um, enigma is a riddle, an enigma, which I think is a little circular reasoning there. But anyway, and it, it's an obscure saying. In Judges chapter 14, where we read the story of Samson, um, uh, uh, the people tell Samson to put forth your riddle and let us hear it. Just an example of the word um, in, in the Hebrew there. It is an obscure thing. It comes from the word ainos, which means praise, a saying, a proverb, which is interesting because this is really kind of, this is, this, is, this is not really praise. It's kind of the opposite of it, right? But it does have that root word rooted in praise and a proverb. The Hebrew word is chidah. It is a dark saying sentence, a spe of speech, a hard question, proverb, a riddle, a puzzle. Hence, a trick, a conundrum, a, a sententious maxim. I didn't look that one up. <laughs> Numbers 12, 6 and 8 says, And he said, Hear now my words. If your prophet is of, of Hashem, I make myself known to him in a vision. Everybody know where we are in, in, in the book of Numbers right here? It's right after Miriam and Aaron have spoken evil against Moshe. Okay? They, they've, they, God has called them to the temple, to the Mishkan, and, and, and he's having counsel with them. Uh, <laughs> I make myself known to the prophet in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moshe. He is trustworthy in all my house. You remember in the book of Joshua, it talks about Moshe being a man, the, going from being a man of God to being the servant of God because a servant is trusted to enter into even the chamber of the king. Okay, well, we can see that right here in Numbers chapter 12. Moshe is so trusted that he could enter even into the inner sanctum of the king's chamber. Not so with Moshe. I speak with him mouth to mouth and plainly and not in riddles. He's not going to speak to Moshe in ways that can confuse. Right? He sees the form of Hashem. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moshe? If this happened to Aaron and Miriam back then, what's happening today when we speak against Moshe and against his teaching that he handed down? Riddles. We can also we can also see that a parable might be similar to a riddle. Okay, Yeshua spoke in, in parables all the time, um, and, he, and 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 when asked by his Talmudim, his disciples, why he always speaks in riddles, it says. He tells them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to the rest in parables that seeing they do not see and hearing they do not understand. Now we've talked about this the last few weeks. But the whole purpose is that they weren't meant to know. And so he spoke in parables in ways that, that didn't really show them the truth without some really deep understanding that they couldn't quite grasp. Kind of like a riddle. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 9 says, But we speak 
the wisdom of Elohim which was hidden in a secret and which Elohim uh, uh, ordained before the ages for our esteem which no one of the rulers of this age knew for if they had known they would not have impaled the master of esteem but as it has been written eye has not seen and ear has not heard nor have entered into the heart of man what Elohim has prepared for those who love him it is often spoken of what it's going to be like in the Olam Haba. This is, this, is, this is the new Jerusalem when it comes down. Can you imagine what this world would look like with God as its light instead of the sun? That he restores everything to the way he originally intended for it to be? But we can't conceive of that because no eye has seen nor ear has heard and, 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 and it hasn't been entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. We can't, we can't comprehend it because his ways are so much greater than ours, so much higher than our ways. Now, let's go back to our Yidrash portion. Hebrews 8, 6, and 7 says, But now he has obtained a more excellent service, inasmuch he, he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was instituted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, this is often taken out of context, and again, without understanding of the covenant itself and of temple. Was there something wrong with the covenant? Because it says here, for if that first covenant had been faultless, that suggests that there was fault found with the covenant. But it wasn't the covenant that was at fault. It was the people. Right? The only fault was in the people's keeping the covenant. And so that's why he wants to find a better covenant. Why he wants to come, uh, he wants to bring that, that better covenant about. That, that word better is kritum. Uh, it is better, stronger, more excellent. What is better because more fully developed, i.e. in reaching the needed dominion, more useful, more serviceable, more advantageous. Imagine how much more advantageous it will be when instead of just in a book for us to try to absorb the word of God is written on our hearts. That it's already within us. That it's, 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 it's ingrained in us. It's part of our DNA. It's no longer just something that we read on tablets or on pages. It comes from the word kratos. It is strength, might, dominion, power, mighty deed. From a root meaning to perfect or to complete. So better means that it's going to complete us. Right? Wasn't there a movie that said, you complete me? Well, Hashem completes us. His Torah written on our hearts is what will complete us. To perfect or to complete. In Philippians 1, 4, and 6, we see a representation of that. In all my prayers for all of you, Paul writing to the Philippians, I always pray with joy for your fellowship in the good news from the first day until now, being persuaded of this, that he who has begun a good work in you shall perfect it until the day of Yeshua Messiah. Well, that means that we need to keep striving for the perfection the Torah calls for, that Hashem calls for in his Torah. Okay? Because he says, you will be perfect, for I am perfect. Just as he says, you will be holy, for I am holy. Okay? Romans 10.4 says, for Messiah is the goal of the Torah unto righteousness to everyone who believes. So, the, pers the, 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 the continued perfecting is to get us to be like Messiah. 
right? Because the more like Messiah we are, the more righteous we are, the more perfect we are. The more perfect we are, the cleaner we are, and the more God is going to be willing to dwell within us and within our midst. All right, so uh, Hebrews 8, 8 through 10 says, For finding fault with them, not the covenant, not with the rules, not the laws of the covenant, but the people who entered into covenant with him. He says, See, the days are coming, says Hashem, when I shall conclude with the house of Israel. And that word, that word conclude is, is, is I will enter into, I will complete, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to sign off on the covenant. And guess what? It's only him that's signing off on it because it's his promise to us. And with the house of Judah, a renewed covenant, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand of, 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 of uh, uh, Egypt, Mitzrayim, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says Hashem. Right? So the, co the covenant, that, the, the, the renewed covenant is going to be so very different because it's the better promise that he's going to do something and all we have to do is be obedient because we love him. Because this is the covenant that I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, says Hashem, giving my laws into their minds, and I shall write them on their hearts, and I shall be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. Well, Richard read this today. That's Jeremiah chapter 31, 33 and 34. Okay? And yet it's still only a shadow, that which is going on here, that which we see, which we are working towards perfection. It's still only a shadow of that which is to come. 2 Timothy, Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by Elohim, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for setting straight, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of Elohim might be fitted, equipped for every good work. That means that we need to continue to study the word. We need to continue to fight the supposed contradictions, right? But in order to do that, we still need to have understanding of how the word connects. That's why we're here every Shabbat. And that's why we open our Tanakhs and our Bibles every single day to take a look and dig deep. That's why we have Richard who digs deep with each, each and every year passes. We go a little bit deeper into the, la the deeper layers of Torah. Thank you for that, Hashem. Thank you for that. And that's your New Testament portion. Sim Lechon